Guys, this is a, a gift for me. It's not something I, I get to do very often. It's actually, it's not my favorite thing to do because it takes a lot of preparation for me, but every time I do it, I'm really glad. I'm glad at the journey that it invites me into. So uh, like Andrew said, my name is Cyrus. I've been an Ethos family member for about seven years, been here at Marathon for two and a half, and I get the, the pleasure of working with college students all the time. My wife and I do. Um, my wife, who's not here, uh, thanks all of you who have fed me and kept me out of trouble, especially the college kids that I've hung out with till midnight or later in her absence. Um, but a lot of the things that, that I get to talk about today are some things that we've learned together. And there's this reality of our beliefs deeply influence our actions, and our actions influence our beliefs. And when we heard Brandon speak about our sister churches in India last week with Jayshree and Pius and, and the seven churches that they support were left with like this, this picture of two people who are unbelievably um, committed to the gospel in their context. You know, they travel hours multiple times a day to support their churches. They, they help create jobs for, for mothers in the slum so they can be with their kids. They help feed hundreds of kids. They're these, these incredible visionaries. And sometimes we look at them in their context and we think of them as spiritual giants and they, and they are in a lot of ways, but I think their context um, creates something beautiful in them that maybe our context in Western culture doesn't, that we have to really fight to understand. We have to fight that because we do not live in a place where it's unpopular to believe what we believe, that our beliefs and actions are constantly being dictated by the places we put ourselves by the people we place ourselves around and the things that we, um, that, that we surrender to the Lord and not the things that our community is actually trying to take from us. And so I wanna unpack that question after hearing about the amazing things that Jayshree and Pius and our church partners in India are doing. And I wanna ask the question of what does that look like for us? And the kind of the, the, the tricky part of this is it's probably gonna look very different for each of us. For those sitting next to you, this idea of sacrificial living might, might be in a completely different community. Your heart might burn for a completely different problem and why we can't care for all the problems of the world, or sorry, we can't address all the problems of the world. We are called to care and as a community, we can address all the problems of the world through the spirit of God inside of us. You know, so instead of painting this picture of this is what this is gonna look like, I wanna kind of leave us with this idea that today, I hope we walk away with more of a roadmap to discovery. Some principles, some fundamental truths that I think are so true about our friends in India um, and other very influential and global leaders of the faith that, that our actions are dictating some of the things that we believe, but also inversely, it's our beliefs that are dictating some of the things that we do. And, uh, you know, a really simple idea that I think helps me ground this reality is when, um, when I was trying to date my wife and she had, she had no, uh, no business with that, she was like, no thanks. Um, she, she and I had this conversation and she said, you know, when I look at scripture, I get marriage. I don't understand dating. When I look at scripture, I get why marriage is important and why it's so beautiful, but in the context of the way we date, I am lost. Like, I don't think scripture has anything to say about that. And we, we came to this conversation, both of us, from this place of 
having been in relationships where we left wounded and, and, and the other person left wounded, and we realized that although scripture doesn't use that word ever, dating, we've let the lack of that context idea allow us to let culture really dictate what we think dating is, even our own Christian culture. And so there's this reality that our belief about what dating relationships look like was largely coming from human philosophy, American and Western culture, and not at all being filtered through the context of scripture. And our actions reflected that. And so when we came into this new dating opportunity, we wanted to be transformed in our thoughts and our actions and how we did it. And, and that was an incredible gift. And, you know, and so that's one small picture of where we're constantly culturally wrestling, we, even within our own churches, of what does it look like to live as citizens of heaven? I think, um, you know, in particular, we have a lot of really charged social and political conversations going on today. And actually, in the midst of, of some, some protests that many of you may know about that were going on in Murfreesboro and Shelbyville yesterday with some white nationalists gathering to, to exercise their right to, to say what they say and believe what they believe, um, that's a picture of even how our beliefs affect our actions in negative ways, all right? And, and coincidentally, uh, a lot of the students that are actually right here, went, we all went to the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis instead. Not instead, it was, it was already on the books, it was already planned, but instead of focusing on what was happening here, we went to Memphis and, and we focused on what happened 50, 60 years ago and hundreds of years ago and the reality that, that our nation has really struggled with some pretty black stains on our history. In that context, actually, honestly, it kind of wrecked my sermon for today, so <laughs> I stayed up pretty late changing a few things. Um, and it wasn't that it, wasn't that it isn't, wasn't true, it was just that this reality of actions and beliefs are always happening all the time as we live as citizens of heaven. And so, you know, when I think about comparing our context to our friends, I believe that fundamentally the idea of living sacrificially, it stems from the same place no matter where we are in the world, and it's because that's a reflection of the cross. So sacrificial living is always a reflection of the cross. But what I believe is different from our friends' context in India to ours is that in their society, which is not distinctly Christian and not even opposed to Christianity, it's often easier to name what is broken and missing we can name the enemies that are opposed to those who follow Jesus. It looks like persecution and suffering. You know, but our challenge is not that there isn't any persecution and suffering here. It's just that so often it isn't directly affecting me. It isn't directly affecting you. And so when persecution isn't our problem, it's pretty rare that we go looking for it. Am I right? I know I don't go looking for it. You know, uh, I have a, a friend who, he's my, he's my podcast junkie friend, Chris Wilkinson. We are always sharing uh, thoughts, lectures, TED Talks, audiobooks. In the summer, he sent me one by Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard is one of the most influential shapers of our faith probably in America in the last 50 years. And before Dallas Willard passed away in 2013, he did a conference with John Ortberg. And in the middle of this conference, he said something that I have not been able to, to let go of. I've referenced it almost weekly. He says, anytime someone does something good for God, it begins with a vision. 
but the vision isn't what I'm going to do. It's not of what we're going to do. It begins with a vision of God and how good God is and how fortunate I am to be alive in God's universe. Really simply put that every good thing we do for God begins with a vision of who God is. I think uh, if we look at Paul's letter to the Romans in, in Romans 12, we see this hinge of this whole concept that I think Dallas Willard paints a per- perfect picture of. And that picture is our beliefs dictate our actions. The more that we see God for who he is, the easier it is to respond in sacrificial worship, right? And so uh, if you, I meant to say this earlier because Monte did a lot of hard work in finding this page number for me. If you, if you have one of our Bibles, we're gonna be on 798 in Romans 12. I'll let you all get there if you're looking for it. Thanks for that, Monte. Um, but in, in, in the book of Romans, we see that Paul writes one of the most theologically rich texts that we wrestle with today. You could read all the commentaries and still miss, you know, miss it by a mile. And so we wrestle with these words of someone who laid his life down for the advancement of the gospel. And what he does to his Roman brothers and sisters, his, his Gentile and Jewish Christian brothers who are in their own, in their own way in a really kind of mixed and, and confusing cultural climate, he spends the first 11 chapters almost entirely writing about who God is, about God's beauty, his righteousness, his grace. And now he saves both Gentiles and Jewish Christians, right? He, he unpacks these things that they believe to be true about God that aren't. And he's trying to, to focus them on the heart of God in all things. And then the last five chapters, uh, chapters 12 through 16, Paul begins to write about what this looks like for those of us who see God clearly and know it to be true. And these first two verses in Romans 12, one and two, kind of hinge these two ideas together. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And here Paul helps us understand that the move from belief to action, two things make up a living sacrifice. There's two things that no matter where you are in the world, citizens of heaven practice this, and that's a surrender of the self and a transformation of the mind. And it's these two movements, surrender and transformation, that that we're going to talk about in in order to understand this passage in our context. And so why does Paul lead with offer yourselves as living sacrifices. I think Paul describes surrender as a natural response, just like Dallas Willard does. He's essentially saying, therefore, or because of what I've written about for 11 chapters, brothers and sisters, offer your whole self as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable act of worship. Holy and well-pleasing, the only logical response to such a clear vision of who God is, is to worship him with our entire existence. And what Paul is saying in in these verses to the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome is the exact same thing he was saying about circumcision in Romans 8, where, where the Jewish Christians really wrestled with circumcision as a physical sign that all Christians must have. And Paul is saying that 
that circumcision is no longer a physical sign, it's a condition of your heart. And so in worship, he is now saying that worship isn't just a sacrifice in the temple, it's offering up your entire lives. And to us today, this means that worship is more than raising our hands and making it to church on Sundays and and worship is, is offering your everything to God all the time. This is worship that is holy and well-pleasing. It's, it's this mentality, hold absolutely nothing back. Your careers, your families, your possessions, your dreams, your hopes, those can all be given back to God in worship. But what we realize is that our opportunity to give things back to God in worship is often really comes into conflict with our cultural understanding that it's gonna cost us something. It's gonna cost us something, and sometimes that something is more than we ever knew we had to give. But what is important, it's not that we shouldn't congregate, it's not that worship together isn't, isn't part of our, our routines and our, our rituals of understanding and growing in community of God. My prayer is that as we look at our brothers and sisters in India, as we live in the context of today, we realize that the space that we've created is about all of us looking to God together so that because we gather on Sundays, our lives are radically different every other day of the week. It's because that we spend time focusing our hearts to see God more clearly that when we leave these walls, things change, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. But sometimes when we hold on too tightly to what God has given us, instead of giving it back to God in worship, we often find ourselves stuck in sometimes a meaningless and small existence. Our worlds become really small. And I think, you know, if I had to take us to another passage of scripture, the prophet Haggai writes about this. And, you know, the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, they kind of conclude the narrative of the Israelites in the Old Testament of of being exiled and then being brought back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. And, 18 years or so after the Israelites were were given the edict from the king, hey, you can leave Babylon and you can go back and rebuild your city. The prophet Haggai gets this word from the Lord because nobody's rebuilding the city. They've only been rebuilding their houses. You know, and so if we we read and kind of paraphrase this, this story, it says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is time for you yourselves to dwell. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? He says, now therefore consider your ways. He says, you, you're worried about your existence. You eat and you're, you're never satisfied. You drink and you're never filled. You clothe yourselves and you're always cold. And he, and he goes on to say, thus says the Lord, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. It feels a little too close to home in today's cultural wars to say that God's not interested in how much work that I'm doing when, my, when his house lies in ruins. We see this in this story that too often we become so worried about our own homes, our own protection, that we neglect the kingdom we've been invited to help build. 
This doesn't mean that our own homes, our jobs, our families, or our security isn't important. It just simply highlights this really, this, this all, too, all too true human tendency that we struggle with, that when, um, that when I'm focused on my own self-preservation, I totally neglect the advancement of God's kingdom. And this is our, our, betis, our greatest battle today from the comfort of our homes. When persecution isn't knocking at our door, it's too easy for us to sometimes check out. I'm not saying we have to go, go look for persecution for persecution's sake, but what I am saying that in a culture where, where instead of persecution, the normal is to build a comfortable existence around ourselves, it's so often very hard for us to trust God with our entire existence because it's comfortable, because we know how discomfortable that cost might be. When I think of what this might look like, you know, in a context, our context, I think of a story of a man named Sean Gordon, and uh, this is another YouTube TED Talk. Look him up. Um, But Sean was this prisoner. He was a former gang member, and his story was that as a child, he witnessed his father get stabbed to death in his front yard, and only a few weeks later, his grandfather was stabbed to death. And by the time he graduated high school, his mother had died from AIDS. This, this, this man's life was a wreck from day one. He was the product of a broken society and, and broken people and broken decisions. And when his mother died in high school, the walls just broke and the anger came roaring out of him. Everything that he had pent up, all the loss, all the pain, all the suffering led him to serve two prison sentences. And in between those two sentences, Sean met a, met a girl, they got married and they had a kid. And while they were pregnant with their second child, Sean went back to prison. And it was during this, this time that he was locked up that he met somebody who had been transformed by the peace of God. He, he met this man who was like always so peaceful in the place that no peace existed. And Sean began to ask questions and soon God worked on his heart and he surrendered his life. And his, his commitment then was, when I get out, I'm gonna be there for my family. I'm gonna be there for my kids even one that I have yet to hold. And so Sean, he, he actually leaves prison and having earned a degree while in there through a program, is on the streets of San Francisco trying to find a job. This dude is like massive Samoan, tatted head to toe, and one of the most intimidating people to look at, um, and no one would take a chance on him. And so this, this newfound desire to do right for his family was really overcome by the reality of the world that he lived in, some of the decisions that he's made. And so on the the streets of one of the worst neighborhoods in San Francisco called the Tenderloin region, he runs into a Chinese pastor and they strike up a conversation and they become friends. And within a month, this pastor invites this man and his family to come live in their home. They move their kids into rooms with each other. This pastor and his wife move into the smallest bedroom in the house and they give the master bedroom to Sean, his wife, and their two kids. They lived there for eight months. And within three years of Sean's family moving into that house, Sean had helped this pastor plant seven other churches and was helping him lead various nonprofit organizations. Many of you might have heard of who this this man, this pastor is. His name's Francis Chan. And not long after I heard this story, I was reading one of Francis Chan's books called You and Me Forever. It's, it's a book about marriage in light of eternity. That's a whole nother 
If you wanna talk about being transformed in the mind and the way we, we view marriage, read that book. Stepping into marriage in light of the eternity of God's kingdom is very different from the culture that we live in. But it was in this book that I read Francis and Lisa's side of the story. And we think, I would think, and I did, I was like, man, Francis is awesome. He's got his stuff together. That was probably super easy for him. But they shared their side as it being incredibly difficult to get beyond their fear of inviting a former felon into their home. The fear for their children, the, the discomfort that it would cause their family, the inconvenience it would be. And so um, I realized that none of us are, are exempt from this struggle of fighting for our own comfort, our own selfishness, our own existence. But this is it as citizens of heaven, you guys. Surrender, surrender of the self and transformation of the mind. This is where we're living every day all the time because what Francis and Lisa and their family received through that was not just this sacrificial moment where they gave up more than they knew they had to give. It was through that that God began to transform their mind on generosity. And they began to see what God's good and perfect will for their family was. You know, and, and so as we, as we step into that idea of uh, do, do not be conformed to the, the culture, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul writes that it, what Paul is writing is essentially he's saying, hey, test me, test me on this. God, God wants to be tested. It's a, a 100% money back guarantee moment where God is saying, and Paul is saying that the ways of heaven are far more satisfying than what this world could ever offer you. You know, and I wanna, I wanna pause here because this is the moment where in our culture, because discomfort's not knocking on our door, that we wrestle with some realities that, that maybe we don't have any problems in our culture, that we ourselves don't have any problems. And if we recognize that we do, sometimes we have this tendency to really downplay what those problems mean in our life. But if we take an honest look at our church history or even our history, as we did with my students yesterday at, at the um, Museum, we'll see that we often have overlooked the black stains of our own history of being silent in the face of injustice and, and the distance that we've created between us and the oppressed and the broken and those in need. Like that is totally on us and it's still here today in our culture. And that sometimes when we focus too much on created things instead of the creator, we get locked into that tiny and meaningless existence. You know, and, and, and at this civil, civil rights museum, there was a, a moment where I was like, what? I was a moment where I realized, man, I got to rewrite my sermon. Um, but there was a, a quote from a civil rights leader after the bombing in Birmingham of a church that killed four little girls. And his quote was, we don't only want to pray for the murderers, we want to pray for the societies and the, idea, the society, the ideals and the philosophies that created these murderers. And so it's not individuals that we're praying for, guys. We are praying for culture, for a cultural war that sometimes convinces us the things that we do are okay just because that's the way things are. And if we believe that we are absent from that today, we are lying to ourselves. And to live as citizens of heaven in the context of our, cultural to, of our culture today means that we are going to have to come face to face with some of those uncomfortable truths. You know, when it comes to, 
to generosity. We may challenge ourselves that giving can be so much more than a financial gift. We can share our resources, open our homes, physical acts of service, and that this generosity should extend far beyond just our church family. For Jesus, that looked like breaking bread with sinners and eating with tax collectors. It looked like touching those who no one would touch and acknowledging those whose society had cast aside. In order to love and live like this, many of us will come face to face with sacrificing our own comfort, convenience, and even our concern for whatever, what other people think about us. Some of you today are, are wrestling with loss. For you, living sacrificially may be as simple as hanging on to your courage to simply trust God. This week, I, I spent time with a close friend and it feels like death is just surrounding their family and has been for weeks. And he, he painted this picture for me that you're living through tragedy after tragedy and your heart is heavy and you're tired and you feel like God and your family are getting what's left and maybe presenting yourself as a living sacrifice may be as simple as fighting to be present before the Lord when all you feel is spiritually numb. I think one important piece of surrender and transformation for all of us is to learn to trust God, not only with our present and our future, but also our past. This means that for us who believe we've disqualified ourselves from grace, that when we go to the altar, we bring our mistakes with us. We trust that even God can make those mistakes into something beautiful. For some of you today, it might look like surrendering your hope for marriage and you are just fighting to trust that in your singleness, this is God's best for you right now. In light of the rally that took place yesterday, just 60 miles from here, I think for many of us, it might be learning how to come face to face with our own privilege that allows us to ignore so many conversations of, of injustice that actually affect millions of our brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying that you, you have to have the answers, but I'm, I am saying that we, we all have to wrestle with it. For all of us here at Marathon, I think it's learning how to filter our culture, especially our Christian culture, through the lens of the gospel. And maybe it's, maybe it's naming where we have been busying ourselves with good things like ministry and neglecting the people that God has put right in front of us. And this is, this is the, beautiful, the, the beautiful reality of this sacrifice. It's, it's a daily laying down our lives on the altar and, and coming to the Lord for a renewal of the mind and for transformation. And while it's an action for us to show up, it's not our business to be transformed, that's God's. And so for all of us, it's, it's showing up, it's getting on the altar, it's being there, presenting ourselves before God so that he can, he can transform us into something beautiful. And it's not, this isn't a moment where God is trying to deal harshly with us. I guarantee you, as we test God on this, we're gonna see him smiling on us because this is the intimacy that he desires is, is people who are willing to give all of themselves, everything that God has given, given them back to him in worship. But the challenge is that sometimes I think it's easier to crawl off the altar than it is to get back on. <laughs> that idea of a living sacrifice is that although we place ourselves there, we just as easily get back down, right? And so my questions for us are, you know, how can we find the strength 
and the courage and the energy to live like this here in the context of our culture. And I believe there are four things that, that we must consider as we fight to lay down our lives in worship and offer up our minds for transformation. First, just like we started with, it begins with a vision of God and of how good God is and how fortunate we are to be alive today, especially in the midst of brokenness. The more we see God as he is and the more we learn to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, the more we learn that we cannot outgive God. We cannot outgive him. We realize that there is no place more secure and no place more satisfying than to live into God's will for us right now. Second, we just need to remember that, that Jesus has gone before us, that there is nothing that God or Jesus will ask us to do that he himself has not already done or would do. You know, it was Jesus who approached the Samaritan woman at the well. It was Jesus who sat with the woman caught in adultery. It was Jesus who washed the disciples' feet. It was Jesus who prayed, God, take this cup for me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And it was Jesus who went to the cross and died and raised again. If Jesus can't convince us that it's worth it, then nobody can. And that's why is, as we look to Jesus, as we see him for who he is, it's almost unreasonable to think that we ourselves can't respond in lives of worship. Third, we lean on the body. We lean on each other for encouragement and, and accountability and for strength. You know, while encounters with God are often deeply personal, I think obedience to God and learning to live as citizens of heaven is a communal pursuit. It takes all of us. There are two people in my life who, who feel the weight of heaven so deeply. One of them is my wife and another one is one of my students. And I won't, I won't embarrass her with y'all, but she is someone who, who feels the weight and it's in her tears for the brokenness of the world that I myself can see into God's heart. And it's through the strength of the community that she can bear that weight. And it's this give and pull. It's this reality that, that we live together under Jesus, bringing, bringing God's heaven to earth, not by ourselves, but together. And I would say the last thing, and sometimes the thing that it's easy, the easy, is easiest for us to forget, is that we have been given the Holy Spirit, right? It's God in each of us that is most hungry for heaven to come to earth. And as we begin to see God for who he is, Holy Spirit wants nothing more than to embolden us, to lay our life down in worship, to see sick healed, dead raised to life, broken people made beautiful, and a society changed, right? As we wrestle with these four concepts, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have Chris and Callie come back up and, and they're gonna lead us into two parts of communion. And so the first part, of communion is that as we, as we get into our groups and our, with our friends and our family and who we came with, I wanna talk about where is God inviting us to change the way we live and be transformed in what we believe? This may look like, what are the re resources that we hold on to that we know God is asking for us to give back to him in worship? Then this might mean wrestling face-to-face -face with some of our beliefs about him or our beliefs about this culture that are untrue, and we've been trying to drag those into the kingdom of God. And the truth about God's kingdom, guys, is that there is no thing that, that is not of heaven that belongs there. And so none of our human philosophies, none of these things that, are, that we believe are right and normal and good in the context of our day can be dragged with us into God's, God's kingdom, right? 
So what is it that God is asking you to do differently in laying down your life? But where is he also asking you to surrender your mind for transformation? And the second part um, that they'll lead us in is they're just gonna sing a song over us. So they'll, they'll pull you out of your conversation and you can finish your conversation, but they're just gonna sing a song over, over us so that we can receive and hear from the Lord. So some of these ideas that we, we've wrestled with today, I think God wants to speak over us. So I would say, pay attention to the words, listen to the words, but also ask God to speak loudly and clearly to your context and in, in the context of today. And if, and if you need to talk and if you need to pray, we're gonna have men and women in the back at the red respond banner who'd be happy to pray with you. Um, so I'm gonna invite you all to stand and I'm gonna pray and we'll go to communion. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the truth that you, fully God, fully man, came and lived the life that none of us could live. You invited us to become a part of your family. You bridged the gap for us to become citizens of heaven again, to experience intimacy with you and intimacy with God. And we can trust you because you have gone before us and done everything that we ourselves could never do on our own. Lord, as we wrestle with the context of today and what does it look like for us to live sacrificially, I pray, God, that we would allow our beliefs to influence our actions and our actions to lead us to renewed minds and new beliefs. God, help us to reflect, help us to renew our commitment to you, our commitment to our brothers and sisters in this church, but also our commitment to being your agents of change and glory in this world. God, we love you, and we thank you for your son, and it's through him that we give thanks and pray. Amen.